And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when just about anything can happen, and tonight, it, it seems to be breaking. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to prepare a show like this, which is going to try in the next three hours to encompass something like 13.8 billion years. And one does not imagine that in that extraordinary stretch of time, there will be anything like breaking news, but there, there seems to be something going on with Webb that nobody ordered. You know, it's that old joke. Where he looks around and they said, uh, who ordered this? Something is going on with Webb, which frankly was not going on when I started preparing for this show with Chandra Wickramasinghe. And uh, I certainly didn't think it was going to continue to occupy some attention tonight as we're going to try to lay out from our perspective, which is, I think, a bit unique, why the Webb telescope is really the paradigm-shifting, groundbreaking um, uh, mold-shattering technological wonder that it is already uh, uh, tempting us to think that it might become. Um, without getting into the details up front, toward the end of the show when we have laid, as the lawyers say, proper foundation, I'm going to uh, uh, bring up this new data because, frankly, when I initially saw it, like everybody does, you know, if you're not used to looking at stuff, Day in and day out, you you look at something and your kind of attention is drawn somewhere else and the cat has to go out or someone has to go to the store or, you know, there are five phone calls that need your attention. So you kind of, you know, you kind of lose track. I had an email this afternoon from someone who is uh, very well-placed in the UAP UFO community, um, has been working on exopolitics for many, many years, and he asked me a very simple question regarding some of the new web data. And as we were putting the final touches on what is going to be a very intensive imaging show tonight, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, I followed the directions of this individual, who I've known for many years, and I went and looked at one of the latest releases from the Webb Telescope data dump of a couple, three days ago. And I looked, and I looked again. I did a double take, because my initial assessment that what I had glanced at very briefly was just noise, the kind of shakedown that all new, very complex, very interrelated technologies go through, which is why you have what's called a commissioning uh, time interval a protocol that basically when you build something brand new and half of it has never been you know created before and 90% of it's not supposed to work together uh, ever before and you've done all this testing and spent all this money but there's always you know uh, Murphy's law so um, in the midst of the jubilation and excitement regarding the release of the uh, initial images this particular set of images, this particular, there's actually two sets, came out a couple of days later and has not obviously received the kind of worldwide uh, approbation that the uh, initial release did. They kind of like, you know, slipped over the transom. And looking back in hindsight now, I'm wondering if NASA has not done this deliberately. Oh my God, how many times have we said this? You know, you see a pattern and then you say, could there be something behind it? Could someone actually be directing this rather bizarre set of behaviors? Well, again, without being overly mysterious, it won't make sense until we get through some of the program tonight and I lay background. So without further ado, um, for those of you who are new to The Other Side of Midnight, what I want you to do is to go to theothersideofmidnight.com. You're listening on some device, probably a smartphone. That smartphone can connect to the internet in multiple ways while you're listening. So you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. You want to click on tonight's banner, uh, which is at the top of the homepage 
for the other side of midnight, which says rather grandly, the coming wonders of Webb, how this telescope can save humanity. Now, I do not like hyperbole. I try not to uh, partake of it uh, whenever offered because it usually kind of goes down wrong. But I must say, even as we constructed the foundations of this show, which is I'm going to try to deal with the Webb telescope unveiling an experience from a whole new direction tonight that I guarantee you will not have heard and will not hear anywhere else. And as we go through the evening or morning, whatever the case may be, um, I may uh, drop a few personal uh, anecdotes in from time to time because I've been at this game, you know, space astronomy, NASA, the orbiting space telescopes, the generation of uh, astronomers able to leave the surly bonds of Earth and and touch the face of God literally in terms of the origins of who we are, what we're all doing here, and how we figure it out. So as we as we move through this process, um, the reason that this latest breaking news is so interestingly relevant to tonight's title is that it looks like, and again, this is just a mere first impression, that someone is advancing a timetable. And that won't mean anything, you know, in the beginning of the show, and maybe by the middle it, it, it will. So let's, let's jump right in. Uh, you're on the homepage of the other side of midnight.com. You want to click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And under the guest page tonight, there is literally fast links to only one person. Moi, me, me, myself, and I, as my grandmother used to say. So click on that, and that will take you to uh, the images tonight. We have over 50 links and images to go through in three hours. Can we do it? Well, we're, we're going to try. Um, the whole web thing has been ongoing for over 20 years. In fact, when I looked up some dates uh, uh, this afternoon, you know, doing final prep, I realized that there was another, as uh, Contea's friend Bill used to say, quinky dinky in the, um, in the tumbleweeds, because it turns out that web has been an idea that has been on NASA's fevered little brain for much longer than 20 years. And when I saw how long they've been trying to do this, uh, beginning with the first discussions, the first general meetings at the Space Telescope Science Institute there in Baltimore, way back in 1989. You all remember where you were in 1989? I've been trying all afternoon. Where was I in 1989? Well, I think I was in... Uh, in Berkeley, but I'm not so sure. I have to go and see. My life has kind of been modulated by missions here, there, both personal and professional, and space institutional, all that. So unless there's a kind of a mission to hang my hat against, I I have to kind of do a little figuring. But yeah, '89 was the time when we were getting some really amazing imagery from a spacecraft called. Uh, 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 Mars Global Surveyor uh, down from Mars. In fact, that was when I had a very famous birthday party in a tent, literally a circus tent set up in a parking lot in um, uh, a Southern California town. Um, and uh, we showed some um, remarkable imagery which had just been downlinked from Mars. We were all then, of course, focused on this strange place called Sidonia. Anyway, 89 is a long time. In fact, it turns out that it's 33 years. Remember that number. So tonight what I want to do in terms of images, I'm going to give the number and then you'll go, go on your smart device and you'll click on that image and you'll see uh, more detail. And sometimes if you click twice, it even gets bigger. Um, Item number two is simply this, this remarkable telescope, which was launched over six months ago, literally on Christmas morning, and has been sailing to its final halo orbit destination at the so-called L2 point, 
which is about a million miles behind the Earth, away from the sun. And during that time, it has carried out all kinds of autonomous, robotic, and human-instructed commands uh, sent from very loving parents back here on Earth at the uh, Space Telescope Science Institute. And over those six months, the telescope has unfolded like a very high-priced, complicated piece of origami. And it has carried out all kinds of checks of instruments, of computers, of data file management systems, of redundant systems, of backup batteries, of solar panels, everything you can think of, uh, they have done as this spacecraft initially was en route to the L2 point. It took about, uh, uh, I think, a month and a half, two months, something like that, to get there. Then they put on the brakes, meaning they fired little retro rockets, and it's now in this six-month-long halo orbit. It orbits the L2 point as we go around the sun, dragging the L2 point behind us in this gravitational uh, backwater. I mean, that's kind of really what it is. It's one of those dwell locations in a three-body system where things are kind of stable. And you can maintain that very lazy orbit, very remote from Earth and the uh, heat and other um, disturbances like radio transmissions, shortwave, people talking on their cell phones, all that good stuff. You're about a million miles away, and in that very leisurely orbit, you literally have half of the sky to examine. Why only half? Well, the thing that makes this telescope so different from any other of this scale that we have launched. There was IRAS, the Infrared Astronomical Observatory back in the 80s. There then was a telescope called Spitzer, which is named literally after the father at Princeton University of Space Astronomy, Lyman Spitzer, and we'll talk a bit about him later. And then there's Webb. And Webb by far outshines, if I can mix metaphors madly, both of those predecessors because it is, by space standards, huge, absolutely huge. It is, um, well, the actual mirror, remember the, the main driving force of a telescope is the device used to collect light, or in this case, infrared electromagnetic radiation. And there are two ways you can do it, with a lens, and there's limits on Earth to how big you can make lenses before they sag under gravity. Now, in space, of course, you don't have gravity, so you might say, well, why wouldn't you just simplify everything and make a telescope with a really big lens? And then, of course, the question is, how do you make such a, a beast? How do you polish it? How do you shape it? How do you, you know, develop its optical accuracy to literally millions of a wavelength of light? And so the much simpler technique, tried and true, which was begun here on Earth, you know, uh, at least 150 years ago, is to create big reflecting telescopes. Newton actually built one, um, and his was only six inches in diameter. Well, the primary mirror of the Webb Space Telescope, as you have heard me say again and again and again and again and again, because it really is amazing, it's 21 feet wide. 21 feet of mirror. Now, the largest telescope on Earth for decades and decades, up until basically the entrance into the 21st century, latter part of the 20th and the early years of the 21st, was the 200-inch mirror, the Grand Hale Telescope, named after George Ellery Hale, sitting on a mountaintop in Southern California called Palomar, which means dove. Literally, ooh, ooh, um, because it used to be heir to a lot of doves uh, in migration and in foraging and all that. So the Spaniards named it uh, um, Palomar, which means dove. Anyway, uh, Mount Palomar was chosen as the location for this remarkable telescope for its time frame. And in so many ways, as I began looking at this, in terms of what is Webb going to mean, what is Webb going to do to us, to our society, to our vision of the cosmos. In many ways, 
the more appropriate comparison I discovered was not with Hubble, with the previous uh, large space telescope working in the optical region, visible light with a bit of sensitivity in the very near infrared, beyond about 7,000 angstroms, which is deep, deep red to the human eye. I found that the comparison was more apt with the 200-inch, that's a 16-foot wide mirror in case you're doing the conversion, that was built back in the 1940s and has been sitting on the top of Mount Palomar ever since. And the more I looked, the more the parallels became overwhelming. And then I found, as Ar uh, Arthur, as Alfred Hitchcock would say uh, over and over again about movies, the MacGuffin, the thing everybody's looking for all throughout the film. Well, I found the MacGuffin that connects the Webb Space Telescope and my favorite telescope of all time on the planet, which is the 200-inch on Mount Palomar. And I'm going to describe in some detail how that telescope not only came to be my favorite, but that of a lot of other people. And the more I looked at this evidence, the more I looked at this data, the more I looked, you know, the web is an amazing place if you know how to use it. The dots really began to come together. And I now see, and I'm going to try to make the case during the next uh, three hours, minus about 15 minutes, that there is in fact a direct lineal heritage and descendancy and connection and long-term planning between the creation of the extraordinary Big Eye, the Hale Telescope on Mount Palomar, sitting over 6,000 feet above sea level there in Southern California, and the Webb Space Telescope tonight, uh, who's named after the uh, second very illustrious uh, administrator of NASA, the administrator, James Webb, who literally managed us within the Kennedy deadline before the Russians to and from the moon safely on every single flight. And if he'd only done that, that'd be something pretty amazing. But he shaped NASA in those early formative years, in the early 60s, because NASA was formed by President Eisenhower by an act of Congress in uh, July of 1958. Well, about that time, anyway, we will get into some interesting milestones and markers, and I'm hoping by the end of the evening, or if you're far west of us, the morning, that, um, uh, I'm sorry, east of, east of us, yeah, morning is east, morning is east, okay, uh, that you will see these dots and you will come to the conclusion based on the same evidence that I have, which is that nothing that we are seeing regarding Webb and in fact regarding the American political experience right now is divorced from some efforts on the part of some very influential people and institutions behind the scene to craft some kind of grand plan. And I think I can document that that grand plan involving the 200-inch telescope on Palomar is at least three-quarters of a century in the making. And tonight, we have breaking news. Well, we'll get to the breaking news, which is really interesting when you put it against this set of connections. So everyone now click on item number three. Back in the 1940s and 50s, when we didn't have you know, wall-to-wall -wall color television or HD or social media or Twitter or the internet. Um, what did we all do with ourselves? Oh my God, we had to actually read. We had to talk to each other and we had to do it in this arcane fashion, face to face. Oh, perish the thought. Anyway, there were several major national magazines which basically stood in for the as-yet-to-be-born era of instant communication, instant coverage of anything you can imagine anywhere on the planet uh, electronically via the World Wide Web. And one of these major um, um, magazines was, uh, uh, what, what should I call it? It was, it was Collier's Magazine. Now, you may have heard of the, of the name Collier's uh, because uh, Collier's Magazine 
uh, was very famous for publishing in the uh, 50s a series of paintings by a renowned space illustrator named Chesley Bonstell. And it was the Collier's series, which basically was uh, uh, trying to figure out how we would um, how how we would basically um, do this space thing in a big but professional way that kind of set the template for the coverage at that time of activities and research and interests off the planet. So, um, Collier's Magazine in 1948 published this rather remarkable issue and as you can see from the headline on the cover, exclusive first photos through Palomar's giant eye. I mean, that kind of rings a bell, wouldn't you think? So if you now go to item number four, um, this is a color uh, cutaway drawing done by a brilliant uh, draftsman and engineer named Russell Porter, who was probably one of the key prime movers um, of creation of the world's biggest telescope from 1948 until the uh, early part of the 1990s. Um, and he, he was able to, in a world before CAD and computers and, you know, three-dimensional virtual reality and all that good stuff, you know, think um, uh, Tony Stark in his most violent moments in his 3D imaging, he was able to put on paper and on drawing boards this extraordinary view, three-dimensional view of some of the most complicated engineering on the planet in that time frame, in the uh, uh, 1930s and 1940s. So item number four is a color version of Russell Porter's infamous sketch of what the 200-inch telescope on Mount Palomar was going to look like, drawn back when it was just a twinkle in the eye of a whole bunch of engineers and astronomers and dreamers who wanted bigger and bigger and bigger telescopes because basically a telescope is uh, a light bucket. It's designed to capture photons. It's designed to uh, basically um, just, you know, have as much area and collect as much electromagnetic radiation as possible, funnel it to various detectors. In those days, there was only one detector. Well, there were two. There was the human eyeball, which still in the 21st century is very useful. And then there was film. Remember film? Literally film, gelatin film, glass plates, developer, dark rooms. Oh, don't turn the light on, that kind of thing. So all before electronics. So this incredible telescope was popularized by a whole bunch of science magazines and, as you'll see, the mainstream press of the era as the latest extraordinary wonder of the world. And it was. The hype for the 200-inch, as I went back through these archives in the last several days, um, and, and kind of connected with some of my own memories, because I was just a little wee toddler when this was all going on. Um, but I remember little flashes, and I, I now kind of realize where my almost obsession with the 200-inch um, over decades came from. It came from the fact that in this time frame, from the 30s through the 50s and 60s, the closest thing to a citizen participation space program that Americans had was connection to the folks that were manning the telescopes on lonely remote mountaintops all over the world with the 200-inch on Palomar in the late 40s and 50s and 60s leading the way as the most sophisticated and largest telescope on Earth, which, of course, takes me to number five because that's kind of what I, in my mind's eye, look like and I think back because it was the origin of this deep, passionate love and concern and, well, let's say it, maybe even verging on obsession with the role of astronomy and space to um, uh, basically determine where we are and 
who we are. Hang on one second, guys. We will take a short break. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must the white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Isn't how many years can a mountain exist Before it is washed to the sea Isn't how many years can some people exist Before they're allowed to be free Isn't how many times can a man turn his head And pretend that he just doesn't see the answer my friend is blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind yes and how many times must a man look up before he can see the sky. Yes, and how many years before he can hear people cry? Yes, and how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? The answer, my friend, is blowing in. There are a lot of big mysteries that get us up in the morning. What's the origin of the universe? There was, after all, the Big Bang. But what created the Big Bang? Where this time start? Where... TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. 
support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, January, January, July 17th, 2022. We are having some technical problems in the background, nothing that would be a showstopper for our live stream, but uh, Blog Talk is not responding very well tonight, so we're trying to fix it while simultaneously carrying on with the program. And I kind of thought this music is apropos of what's going on. Welcome to the Wild Wild West. One of my favorite shows, by the way. Don't go away. We'll return momentarily after we try to fix what's not maybe going right. As I was saying, you know, you you love it. This is one of the nights when Keith had to do, take care of a personal situation, so he's not minding the store except by remote social media. And it's very hard sometimes to fix things um, when you're not literally in front of the right console at the right time. So, oh, here we go again. I'll tell you what, let me try this. And uh, we shall, we shall return. Don't go away. And welcome back, everyone. You know, there are some people that have earned reputations for being miracle workers. Keith is literally tens of miles from any place where you can do anything, and he somehow was able to fix it. So now we're going out on the stream, and we're on Blog Talk, and uh, all I have to do is wrap my head around anomalies that happen when people are not home. So let's see, where was I? Um... Let me fade this down and resume what I was going to say. You're on the other side of midnight.com and you're looking at the guest page tonight, which is all about web. And as I was saying before, we were kind of so rudely interrupted. I now realize looking back on all the media that was surrounding me as I was growing up, inundating me and millions of other people with the extraordinary opportunities and potentials of this wonder of the world, this 200-inch telescope uh, on Mount Palomar. In fact, that's item number six. You can see some of the press. It was, there were, there were no holds barred. Um, you know, it, this coverage was not only in the science magazines, uh, like you can see on uh, number seven. That's an artist view of the kind of a bird's eye view of visitors looking over the edge of the parapet from outside the dome of the 200 inch and the observer the astronomer literally this telescope was so big that he could literally ride inside at the top at what was called the observer's cage and there's this artwork showing uh, the astronomer with his back to the crowd outside some of them looking down at the mirror many 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 you know uh, hundreds of feet below um 
he's oblivious because he's he's basically working with observing, and of course he is changing plate holders. He is using film to record the night sky. Anyway, Popular Mechanics did an extraordinary extravaganza of various uh, reportage and stories and, uh, you know, developing coverage as the telescope was developed over literally decades because um, there was something kind of consequential that intervened in between the time that was planned and the time that it was actually, you know, fully functional, which was on uh, June 3rd when they did the dedication of 1948. Anyway, number eight, it shows you that the media coverage was very wide and very sophisticated. This is, I believe, a um, frontispiece from a piece in The New Yorker, which shows the telescope in pastels. And the kind of cool thing about this is that it has people in the foreground for size comparison. I mean, this was a behemoth. It still is. And it weighed, if you look at all the trunnions and the truss work and the horseshoe mount with the oil pads that allowed it to frictionlessly move from place to place in the sky, it weighed over 500 tons. The Webb Space Telescope weighs seven tons. Seven tons, and it can see to the edge of the observable universe and the Hale Telescope, because it was earthbound with the atmosphere and its size, um, cannot. So that's how far we have come in three quarters of a century where we can put an independent, almost self-contained spaceship containing a 21-foot mirror, place it a million miles away from the Earth in the L2 point, uh, talk to it, you know, with radio and microwave and S-band and all that you know, high-speed stuff, and it's functioning perfectly, and it only weighs uh, about two SUVs together. That's all, as opposed to 500 tons. And that's, of course, not counting the 1,000 tons of dome that was required, is required here on Earth, to protect a fragile telescope with delicate optical surfaces and instrumentation from suffering the vagaries of terrestrial weather. Okay, moving on. Number nine. Um, I was, as I, as I kept researching, going back and looking at these parallels between all the hype around the 200-inch and the hype around Webb, um, I, I found this. Number nine is a, is a comic book, the cover of a comic book. Again, note the scale of people compared to the, the telescope. And it was designed to appeal to exactly the age group that I was when these comics were put out. There was a broad front social educational program in the United States from the 30s through the 40s through the 50s to basically make people cognizant and aware of the value of science. Even science as remote and distant as distant stars and galaxies that were thousands or millions of light years away. And some of that can be seen in the headlines that we grabbed from local papers all around uh, uh, the uh, nation in this time frame. Big Bertha of Sky will aid science. That was one headline. This from the Richmond News Leader, Giant Telescope in Use. And this one from the Something Daily, Gigantic Telescope for site near Mount Wilson. We'll talk about Mount Wilson shortly. And then another one. Lens will lift veil of heavens. Value forecast by record. Boundless space or closed universe. What giant telescope may reveal. So the questions and the shape of the discussion around the Hale reflector, the giant Hale 200-inch telescope named after the guy who... Uh, uh, raised the money and designed it and put all the team together, George Ellery Hale, and we'll uh, talk about him a little more in a, in, a, in a bit. It was those questions which have not diminished. They've only accelerated in the decades uh, that have passed since the 200-inch telescope was, you know, conceived, designed, and actually um, put into practice. Number Number 15 is one of my favorites. This is from a movie that was um, produced and directed by a very famous 
Hollywood science fiction producer George Pal. It's frankly one of my favorite period sci-fi movies from the period because it its title says it all. When worlds collide, what would humanity do if it discovered there was a body, an errant extrasolar system object streaking at many miles per second from interstellar space to cross the solar system and with its gravitational fields and ultimately with its physical presence would basically uh, wind up destroying uh, the Earth and all of humanity on it. What would what would governments do? What would religious institutions do? What would people do? Well, this film really de- deals with that in a very elegant way. And in the opening scenes, there is this contract pilot who's been hired as a courier to go to an observatory in South Africa, which at the time was one of the major astronomical centers of the of the planet. The Lowell Observatory had close connections with an observatory at uh, Bloemfontein in South Africa for years and years and decades of Mars work. So the idea of South Africa as a bastion of technological excellence in the southern hemisphere. Remember, telescopes can only see from the hemisphere that you build them in. And there was a lot of discussion at one point of actually building a a, a mirror image, pun intended, a twin of the 200-inch somewhere in the southern hemisphere. And South Africa was one of those places that was kind of floated around. Well, anyway, this film, When Worlds Collide, has a scene very close to the opening where this pilot, this courier, is supposed to land in a private plane. He's a private airline air, air, aircraft pilot. Pick up a box of film, negatives. It's literally chained to his wrist, you know, like some, you know, uh, enormously expensive bank draft or, you know, a box containing platinum or gold rubies and stuff like that. And he flies it to the United States to another set of astronomers who are looking over the data, and it's from their analysis that the decision is made, yes, there's something coming, it's going to collide with the Earth, but it has a satellite, it has a a planet orbiting it, this interloper star, and so this extraordinary plot line is hatched to use industry and to create a migration vessel, a rescue craft, to take a handful of humanity from the Earth, which is going to be destroyed, and set it down on the surface of this other world, which it turns out from remote sensing data, spectroscopy and all that, is like another Earth. It's habitable. And so that's the core of the film, and there's a lot of interesting, you know, byplay and character and all that through it. But what's interesting to me was that the outside scenes of this observatory in South Africa is a twin of the 200-inch on Mount Palomar, which was in in first years of its incredible um, professional existence when this film was made in the mid-50s. Not only that, if you look at 16, there were scenes shot inside of astronomers looking at this data, obviously concerned about the coming collision and all that. And in the background, you can see, obviously, a matte photograph of the 200-inch hail reflector on Mount Palomar, magically transported to this mythical observatory in South Africa. So the the iconic image, the professional branding around this telescope on Palomar, was so extensive and so deep that there was almost no part of the culture that it did not reach. And in the early years, in the in the 30s and 40s, uh, when it was still, you know, a, a twinkle, there was a lot of construction, but the actual centerpiece, which was the mirror, had to wait like 11 years for World War II to come and go before construction of this giant telescope could resume. So with this 11 and a half year hiatus, when nothing could be done to build this telescope that George Ellery Hale wanted as his crowning achievement. I mean, here's a guy who, and we'll get into more details later, but he in his career literally um, designed and financed by raising the funds from private entrepreneurial sources, uh, angels, multi-multi-millionaires, 
billionaires didn't exist yet. And he was incredibly successful at raising enormous amounts of money. For instance, in equivalent dollars, the Hale Telescope, the 200-inch, in 1948, cost about $15 million. That was the budget. If you look at inflation, which is about 12 and a half uh, times the, the uh, uh, you know, value of money back then, that's close to $200 million, which is not cheap. Now, you contrast that to the idea that Webb costs $10 billion, and you can see why this miracle a million miles behind us tonight is working. It shows that if you have enough money and you have enough brilliant people and you can hire them and keep them focused on the task at hand, almost nothing is impossible. You know the old cliche that you can't solve a lot of problems by simply throwing money at it? Wrong! The web experience demonstrates exactly that if you can throw enough money at the most amazing technological problems, they can be solved. Anybody in the global climate community uh, kind of paying attention? Because really it's a matter of resources, a matter of direction of funds and attention. Anyway, uh, as part of this national campaign to inculcate the love of this telescope, the 200-inch, and all that it stood for, all that it implied in the form of cutting-edge revolutionary science and peering, you know, millions of light years, uh, if not deeper, into space. Remember, the dethronement of the Earth from the center of the galaxy to just one star system orbiting around the Milky Way in about 240 million years was relatively recent. That only came about uh, per the work on Mount Wilson back in the 1920s. So it was like a generation had gotten used to the idea that distances in space are really, really, really big, and our galaxy is only one of millions or billions or even more. So in this environment, they did all kinds of very imaginative, out-of-the-box thinking to get the people kind of on board. And remember, this was done solely without a penny of public funds. This was all private foundations and people like Carnegie and Rockefeller and railroad builders and oil drillers and all that. There wasn't a single dime of taxpayer money, and yet there was this cultural-wide, nationwide, citizen-wide effort to bring everybody up to speed as to why this was the neatest thing since sliced bread. So you see there in number 17 this you know, extraordinary scale model uh, with the uh, uh, curator kind of leaning over and, I guess, pointing at uh, uh, one part of it. You can see the scale of the dome and the telescope by the formation of the little people in front of the entrance. So everything was built to scale. Uh, item 18, um, the Corning uh, Glassworks Company in Corning, New York, became the heart of the 200-inch project. They were able to create the mirror. They were tasked by Hale with creating something that had never existed on Earth, a mirror over 16 feet wide that when it was exposed to atmospheric perturbations, to sunlight, to thermal stresses, whatever, would maintain its figure regardless of what the average outside temperature was or the temperature of the mirror itself. And they, they, they actually went to a very exotic material for that time, and we'll get to that momentarily. The model making didn't stop. This is, uh, if you look at 19, this is a um, um, Lexan plastic, transparent plastic model, as you can see by the size of the uh, uh, guy standing to the right, that was sent around to schools and used to illustrate the uh, the uh, light rays, as the they call it, ray tracing. And this appeared on the cover of Life magazine. There was no element of American media or American news or reporters or editorialship or magazines, public interest, scientific, uh, popular, uh, whatever. They all were extolling the extraordinary potentials of this soon-to-be 
I mean, they thought in the 30s it was going to happen just in a couple, three years. Turned out it had to wait a long time. Had to wait over 11 years. There were even, and again, keep in mind, this was a totally private project, but the U.S. government, the Postal Service, the USPS got involved and struck a commemorative stamp showing the dome and the uh, telescope inside with the slit um, uh, covers opened. And I always loved those little winglets on the bottom of the uh, uh, covers that rolled aside and allowed the telescope to see the sky. Somebody, I, it was Porter, I, I really think. As far as I can tell, they had no normal... Uh, you know, practical function, but they just looked so cool. And this stamp was issued to all the citizens that might be sending letters. Notice in terms of this price, you get all that for three cents. Oh, and then they went further. There were what are called in the philately industry, uh, philatelists or stamp collectors. There is this whole arcane subculture called um, philatelists, and they specialize in something called first day covers. That is, an envelope is printed, struck with some kind of commemorative, carries the stamp uh, that would have been approved and licensed by the Postal Service, and they basically are are um, canceled, hand-canceled, as a way of memorializing forevermore that the person was attending this event or was part of this dedication or part of this uh, ceremony. And in fact, we, we did some first day covers of our own way back when I was borrowing ships like the QE2 and we uh, deposited one literally in a bottle somewhere between Barbados and Jamaica, I think, in the Caribbean Sea. And it could still be floating around the world because nobody's picked it up, opened the bottle, taken out the piece of paper, and sent us in this era of social media uh, way back from the 1970s uh, any notification that they found our literal message in a bottle. But we had first-day covers struck for the voyage um, that would memorialize and, and kind of mark a, a data point in history if someone ever found our... Uh, Note, um, as I was going through this, I realized that if anybody was on the ball, they should do the same thing for the Webb Space Telescope. And lo and behold, um, a couple of minutes searching, and I found that indeed, at the end of this year, in December of this year, marking one year from the launch of the Webb from French Guiana, there in uh, South America, on Christmas morning, the U.S. Postal Service is literally deploying a new postage stamp in commemoration of the James Webb Space Telescope. So that link takes you directly to all the background information. Uh, they will come in sheets. They'll be a standard price. I forget what it is because the price of stamps has sit, since gone up a bit from uh, three cents. And item number 23, this branding, this trying to penetrate the common person's mind to get people at all ages and all levels to kind of be in sync with the idea of new frontiers, space frontiers, telescopes seeing to the dawn of time, all of this good stuff through the 200-inch Mount Palomar telescope, they actually created a patch. Just like space missions, you know, the Apollo, the Mercury, the Gemini, all had patches. Well, the crew and the citizens who could buy them in the gift store uh, surrounding Mount Palomar literally had their own patch, and you could wear it. Now, I don't remember, God, this is so many years ago, whether I you know, went to the trouble of actually getting one of those, um, but I was fascinated that NASA has simply continued these remarkable traditions in a very, very interesting way uh, off the planet and into a domain where you really can see to the edge of forever. Okay, 24 is the guy behind this extravaganza. Not only the one on the Earth, but by metonymy, kind of indirectly, uh, for Webb itself. George Ellery Hale was a rich kid, uh, born of a, a businessman in Chicago. Uh, his parents doted on him for his passion for science. 
Uh, he and his brother actually were able to convince their mom to set up a whole spare bedroom where they conducted chemistry experiments and uh, built turbines and all kinds of you know mechanical things. And that's when he developed his passion for astronomy. And Hale would go on to design and raise funds and wind up completing the background, the institutional frame, for four of the largest telescopes at that time on the planet. The 40-inch Yerkes refractor, which is up in uh, Wisconsin, and then the 60-inch telescope on Mount Wilson, which is a big reflector, um, the 100-inch uh, telescope on Mount Wilson, which is an even bigger reflector with a mirror, which is 100 inches or 8 feet and change. And you can see Mount Wilson there in 25. This is an old postcard from the from the time frame. This is kind of what you see as you fly into L.A. If you're flying in from the east, which is the general flyway, it will take you down the flight corridor to land uh, on the main runways there at LAX. If you're about 10 minutes out and you look to your right, you'll see the, the mountains to your right, and you'll see this little cluster of white domes and buildings and a couple of very tall towers that's the mount wilson observatory which was all convolved together in one institution uh with mount palomar in the 1960s and so they're now all jointly managed by the same folks at uh, caltech the california institute of technology which was one of the uh institutions that george ellery hale actually created i mean this guy was astonishing in what he was able to uh, pull off without government resources, literally from passing around the hat in this very elite circle of professional business people and entrepreneurs. And he was able to raise the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars privately, um, all in, in the uh, uh, you know service to building these extraordinary instruments which are literally, as someone once said, the engines of creation. So if you look at 26, this is one of the amazing things that uh, George's uh, verve and energy and passion and uh, dedication built. It's the 100-inch telescope on Mount Wilson. It has been there since uh, uh, 1917, and we're kind of reaching a stopping point here, so we probably should um, take a pause and we will turn to uh, the next part of this extraordinary adventure when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're telling the story of Webb from some very, very deep foundations. It all connects as you're going to find out. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.
Thank you.